TED Audio Collective. This is TED Health. I'm your host, Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. From Wall Street to Hollywood, psychedelics are certainly having a moment. I grew up in the era of this is your brain on drugs, and it's hard to let go of stigma and the mental image of an egg frying on a hot pan. Recently, there's been a growing movement to decriminalize these drugs, and investors are flocking to an emerging market for substances like psilocybin, ketamine, and LSD to treat mental health conditions, and even distress at end of life. Listen in to my Clubhouse conversation with three psychedelic experts, internist Dr. Molly Malouf, psychiatrist and neuroscientist Dr. Dave Rabin, and palliative care and oncologist Dr. Anthony Bach as we discuss the future of psychedelic medicines and healthcare. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com thematic investing. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. This is the official TED Club on Clubhouse, and I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter, a practicing internist and the host of the TED Health podcast. We're excited to dive into the world of uh, psychedelic medicines and the future of mental health care. I'm the founder of endwellproject.org, where we're focused on transforming the end-of-life experience, where we'll touch on that today. And we have such a special conversation for everyone. Uh, I'm really honored to be joined by some wonderful experts in this area. We have Dr. Molly Malouf, a physician and entrepreneur, Dr. Dave Rabin, who's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, the co-founder of Apollo Neuro, and my friend and colleague, Dr. Anthony Bach, who's a medical oncologist and a palliative care physician at the University of Washington. So welcome to all of you again and everyone who's joining us in the audience. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. So if you've been following the news on psychedelics lately, 
this space has really exploded with large investments in new companies and lots of clinical research happening for the treatment of several mental health conditions and, and what appears to be a renewed sense of interest in these substances by the general public. So I want to start off with um, Dr. Molly and Dr. Dave. You co-host the Psychedelics News Hour here on Clubhouse every week and certainly are experts in this area. So I, I do want to start out with a basic question to frame this conversation. And could could you give a, a quick overview of what substances we're talking about? What are we considering when we're talking about psychedelic medicines? I think when we talk about psychedelics, it's really important to understand the origins of the word uh, psychedelic, which you know, psyche means mind and delos means to show. So we're talking about putting something in the body or changing the body and the mind in a way that allows us to become more aware of different parts of our own minds, different parts of ourselves, different parts of the environment around us, which is very clear when in a psychedelic state that the environment around us is also part of us. And so it allows us to access diff effectively different parts of our consciousness by engaging in an activity which would induce or facilitate access to a showing of the mind or a psychedelic experience. So that could be induced by breathwork, meditation, yoga, um, biofeedback, uh, holotropic breathing in particular is a really interesting breathwork technique that does this. And it can also be induced by uh, technology or for, or, and induced by, uh, by medicine, like psilocybin from mushrooms, MDMA, which comes originally from sassafras or LSD, which comes from also like a fungal origin and, and all of these and ayahuasca and mescaline. And so all of these different molecules are biochemically altering the brain in a way that is facilitating easier access to this showing of the mind psychedelic state. So it's, so I think what's interesting about psychedelics is we get so fixated on the medicine, but it's really about the state and what that state represents rather than the medicine. The medicine is just a tool, one of many tools to help us access that state more easily. So similarly, I see the word psychedelic and I break it down into another alternative um, sort of definition, which is mind manifesting. So I've always been really interested in this word manifest because reality is, is that all of what we see around us has come from an initially an idea we've had, and then we've gone out and created our lives. So when it comes to healing, part of healing is the dual intention between two people who have this vision of the future together of what they want to create for a person's health. And the goal between a doctor and a patient is to hold this vision so strong and consistently reinforce it so that this new reality is created over time. And this is a very different way of seeing healing and medicine than like traditional healthcare, which is so focused on drugs and surgery. In my practice, there's really only one drug available, which is ketamine. So I use ketamine as a therapy. We basically use ketamine as a tool to help a person transform their consciousness to enable them to work through their blocks and to shift their, their ability to think about their lives so that they can start actualizing this vision of their reality. And then integration is what happens afterwards. So the ketamine is what creates brain-derived neurotrophic factor and increases neuroplasticity. It enables your brain to start thinking about being able to create these new neural networks and neural pathways that are different than the ones that you're running, which may be ruminative or may be you know, despair or maybe lack of joy. We want to change those pathways to, to happiness and to possibility and to um, recovery fundamentally. And so integration is about taking those learnings that you get from these experiences, all these breakthroughs that come up during psychedelics need to be integrated into reality so that we can 
shift our behaviors. And this is fundamentally why I'm so excited about the psychedelic movement, because I believe that we're going to be able to treat a lot of conditions that are truly chronic in nature that are rooted in the mind. You know, we hear a lot about psychedelics, but not as much about how they work and maybe because it's complicated. Can you give us a sense of what exactly is happening in the brain based on what what we know uh, when we use these substances? I can do my best. (laughs) Thanks. And thank you again for having all of us here, by the way. I forgot to thank you earlier. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to share in this conversation with you all because it's a very exciting time for science and medicine. Um, Part of the reason why it's so exciting is because certain technologies like the ability to look at DNA and the markings on DNA um, in terms of which regulate, you know, how much our certain genes or proteins get turned up or turned down is a really interesting technology that never used to exist. And so we're really at a, at a, at a, a fascinating intersection of neuroscience and genetics and molecular biology and psychology um, and also in starting to interface with Eastern and tribal traditions that have believed in some capacity in this I, concept as well of of passing on of traits uh, or passing on of trauma uh, from one generation to the next is something that has actually existed in uh, tribal uh, culture for many tribal cultures for a very long time. The idea is that um, you know these when we are impacted by something in our environment, that thing, that experience that we have is not just changing how we feel. It's actually changing all of us. It's changing how we feel. And then it's also changing the way that our genes are expressed all the way down to the way that our cells interact and the way that we build neural networks around the memory of those experiences. The more you do anything or think about anything in any certain way or practice you know, doing literally anything that we do, good or bad, we will get better at it. We will build tighter neural connections around that pathway. Um, and Rachel Yehuda, who showed that we can, when we be, be, when we experience trauma, that that trauma can actually change gene expression patterns in addition to changing the way that neurons interact with each other, and that those gene expression patterns, those markings on the DNA, can get turned up or turned down. And I think in response to that trauma, and if we don't do anything about the trauma, um, then which has maybe changed our cortisol expression, then we could be passing down to our offspring and to our offspring's offspring, uh, unbeknownst to them, an epigenetic on the DNA um, expression pattern that can be modified, but it is a predisposition to potentially metabolic disorder, maybe mental illness, maybe lots of other things that we didn't realize that we were passing down in that way. The good news about all of this is, because it can sound complicated, is that this is in, this is great news because this is influenced by the environment. So our actions and the environment literally change our epigenetic code of our gene expression. So if you go to therapy, if you do the the work to to heal yourself, if you put the energy out, we know now, at least we're starting to find out from the earliest studies that that actually makes a difference in your gene expression patterns. So it's so it's actually showing that it's worth it to do the work to to get yourself into a state of healing and you will actually make a difference in the way that your body is storing this uh, information about what it perceives as illness, which is really incredible. 
Dave, that really is incredible. Um, wow. Uh, Molly, I, I want to go to you and, and ask, you know, part of the challenge from my perspective with creating a future where, where the controlled therapeutic use of psychedelic medicines is really accessible uh, centers around public perception. Um, can you talk about that, how maybe the war on drugs set us up on a difficult path and, and how do we reframe the conversation around, uh, around psychedelics? Great question. Um, I think I'd just begin with, it does seem like perceptions are shifting. And I mean, marijuana is becoming pretty ubiquitous. And what kind of got me interested in the psychedelic movement was just seeing how marijuana was becoming more of a, more akin to, you know, not just a medicine, but also like it was being seen as a recreational experience, similar to alcohol. And that shift in society is, is only snowballing. And the more we understand about marijuana not being particularly dangerous to society, I think the same kind of information is coming out about psychedelics. Like we're shifting away from these things cause people to jump off buildings and kill themselves to, wow, these actually are fairly safe compared to all the other street drugs. So if you really look at just the numbers, the pure numbers on, you know, actual morbidity mortality when it comes to psychedelics, they're among the lowest risk drugs that exist. So um, that doesn't mean to say that they're completely safe, but in comparison to cocaine and heroin and even opioids, they're far, far, far safer. And I think policymakers, um, people in multiple arms of the government are actually discovering quite a lot of people lobbying for these things to become approved as medicine. Um, Just by the nature of there being multi-billion dollar public companies based on psychedelics today, is a pretty good social signal that these are not going to be seen as damaging um, as you know these other street drugs. And I think because there's so much research going into them, it's going to shift public perception as, as research does. I mean, we're even seeing psychedelic churches emerging. I know actually three people who founded psychedelic churches in the last three years. So I think that we're, we're seeing so many different ways that they're being um, transformed by different movements. And, be, and whether that's the, the, the movement of religion or the movement of actual mainstream medicine or the movement of just decriminalization. I mean, if you look at just the number of cities, even D.C. is decriminalizing many psychedelics. So the fact that like California itself is looking to decriminalize a lot of these, um, what I'm fascinated by, what I'm so curious about is how many companies are going to actually be go, going to actually be, you know, mainstream medicine and how many of these companies are going, like, I'm talking clinical, clinical experiences and, and pharmaceuticals, and how many of these companies are going to become, you know, like mushroom chocolate companies we're seeing popping up in cities like San Francisco, LA, and Miami. Um, I, would, I would presume, if I had to predict the future, that there's going to be a similar split to psychedelics as there has been with um, marijuana. And we'll see, you know, companies come out with microdose tinctures, and we'll, come, we'll see companies come out with, um, you know, candies similar to marijuana um, edibles. And then we'll also see very, very clearly researched pharmaceutical psychedelics that are, um, you know, designed to be given by doctors and therapists in clinics and potentially for home use. Well, that's, that's definitely a possibility. Um, and I think we're also going to see non-psychedelic psychotherapeutics that are based on psychedelic medicine but lack hallucinations. So um, there's a lot of interesting stuff coming, but that's my biggest vision of the future. 
Thank you, Molly. I want to I want to shift gears over to over to Tony and ask a question about clinical research. I know you're planning a clinical trial to study psychedelics as a therapy for clinician burnout. So really looking at healthcare workers. Can you tell us about what you're seeing among maybe your colleagues and other healthcare providers that made you think that a better or a different treatment needs to be found for this? Yeah, thanks, Shoshana. So the the clinical trial that I'm um, just getting started now, it's through the FDA and it's at the IRB right now, is a study of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for doctors and nurses with symptoms of depression and burnout related to their frontline work in the COVID pandemic. And I think it's an interesting example of the kind of um, you know, rigid mental pattern that really smart, well-meaning, highly motivated people can get into in the face of like what's right now a huge challenge, right? When I talk to my colleagues who, um, you know, work in acute care, work in critical care units, I mean, they're exhausted. And, you know, the what's happening with COVID seems like it's constantly changing and the political process and the political drama that surrounds it just seems to like get more and more intense every day. And, you know, the people that I know that work in critical care units, nurses and doctors, I mean, they're not used to being spit on by patients. They're not used to having patients scream at them that they're lying. Um, And that has been incredibly discouraging and dispiriting. And I think in the face of that, it's very easy to get into these patterns of thought where you think nothing I do really works. So the idea with the trial is to try to disrupt that pattern of thinking uh, by using um, the therapeutic process that we've talked about, preparation, psilocybin, then um, integration, and to try to create new patterns of thinking, new ways of coping with this incredibly complicated um, historical and cultural moment that we're in, and um, create uh, a kind of new way for physicians and nurses at the beginning to think about burnout and think about what happens with, um, you know, intense moral injury. Um, And I think in the future to create a a pathway towards a kind of therapeutic use for this that isn't exactly classic depression, uh, that is more like burnout, that might have to do more with moral injury. But, you know, it turned out burnout is not an official psychiatric diagnosis. It's not in the manual of um, psychiatric diagnoses. And so there, it's probably not going to be the first thing to get an FDA indication because the FDA wants to uh, create uh, approvals for things that are, you know, clear-cut already accepted diagnoses. But, you know, we're living in a society that's having an epidemic of burnout, both in the medical profession and outside the medical profession. And and I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting potential here. And so this trial, I think, is one example of the kinds of new ways to um, look at mental health issues uh, that we might be able to explore and really um, flesh out in completely new ways with psychedelics. You know, I think what Molly was saying is so interesting and and the potential for psychedelics is really there. And yet I I just would say that I think psychedelics, because of what happened in in the 60s and 70s, do have a complicated 
cultural history that we, I think, have to be aware of. And I think we who are interested in this and think there is some potential are going to have to do some really careful messaging of what is the thing that we want uh, a regular person to know about these things. Because I think if we don't do that in a really considered way, I mean, other people will do it for us. I love it. And Tony, the, the messaging is so important. And, and Dave, I, you know, I want to ask you, it really does feel like this current psychedelic wave is moving so quickly. What do you think the next, say, five to 10 years are going to look like in the U.S. in terms of the, the access being there to psychedelics in a controlled therapeutic setting beyond just the limited uh, what, what we have now, which, which is limited? And how would you message this if you were in charge of that? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, well, first off, I just wanted to thank you, Tony, for saying everything that you said. It was so well-spoken, and I'm so glad to hear that you are conducting this study in, uh, in clinicians because, uh, you know, working, being in the burnout space as well, it's just, it needs so much attention and love. And so I really appreciate that you're doing that work. I think that, you know, alluding to what, what Tony was saying, uh, and what we've all been saying, I think over time, it's the way that things go is going to be very much rooted in in education and really sharing you know dis, dispelling a lot of the misinformation that has been propagated for many decades and really helping to share with people um a narrative that they can relate to about how these medicines and work and what psychedelic states are really about in the healing process and and really reframing healing for people as something that comes from within each of us that we all have access to, um, not something that we require from outside of us. Obviously, the tools from around us help us heal, but the healing comes from within us. And, and so I think shifting that narrative is, that we are at the center of the narrative rather than kind of sitting on the sidelines watching what's happening while somebody else makes the decisions for us is going to be the single most important part to make sure that this goes well because it forces each of us to take responsibility for our own actions and how we approach ourselves and and our healing process and the world around us and our community etc right and so i think that over the next you know we're going to see the stuff that's that's coming that we're for the most part aware of is that you know while uh is that psilocybin and mdma are likely to be approved by the fda or cleared by the fda for uh treatment you know depression and ptsd by 2023 at least that's where things are what things are looking like right now um, while that's happening, other states will likely continue to decriminalize or change their regulations around the way that people can use these medicines either in the whole state or in certain regions of different states, which has also been happening in California, um, where certain cities and, and Denver, I think, also was another one where that happened with psilocybin. Um, so we're going to see that kind of approach in tandem, which is similar to cannabis, um, happening with the plants as much as it's happening with uh, the FDA. Um, and it seems like the FDA is probably going to be slow, uh, to, to the game. Um, but so I think that's why the education again is so critical. It takes an incredible amount of time, sometimes, you know, dozens of hours with two clinicians for psilocybin and MDMA. Uh, and it really does require when, you know, a, a lot of effort and time and that's, ex and that time costs money. Uh, the medicines themselves are not that expensive, but but time is expensive. And so access is going to be slow based on two things, which is 
that group therapy is not available yet or is not approved as part of the protocol by the FDA, although the FDA is considering it thanks to Rick Doblin's hard work. And that's really, really exciting um, that his team, he and his team are pushing group therapy because group therapy will be the quickest way that we scale uh, psychedelic uh, medicine experiences for people. Group therapy is also just great in and of itself as a healing modality and works wonders for people when done properly. And then the other side of it is insurance, right? Which requires us in a lot of ways to demand it from our insurance providers, from our politicians, you know, to demand that we need coverage for better coverage for mental health care. It's not just about getting cover, better coverage for psychedelics. It's really that we need better and equal coverage for mental health care because in healthcare, unfortunately, mental health is still looked at differently than physical health. Um, and they're not separate. They're entirely the same. If we are mentally sick and we don't, uh, take care of it, we will get physically sick. And if we're physically sick and don't take care of it, we'll get mentally sick. And I think over time, we'll start to see more and more of these different plant medicines, especially the plants start to come forward as the safest alternative to a lot of other struggles we're dealing with, like ibogaine and ayahuasca for opioid addiction. Um, and of course, cannabis, which is already, you know, way ahead and, um, and things like mescaline containing cactus and these different plants that have an incredible amount of utility when used in the tribal setting, I think are going to actually come forward sooner than the synthetic or semi-synthetic medicines like MDMA and LSD. Wow. So fascinating. I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, Molly. And one of the things that I find so amazing and really kind of beautiful about psychedelics is that People who don't tend to agree on much else are funding and they're advocating in the space. They're meeting with one another. For example, former Texas Republican Governor Rick Perry uh, is getting behind the study of, of psychedelics. Why, why do you think this is? Well, funnily enough, I actually had a call with Rick Perry <laughs> and I had a wonderful conversation with him because um, he has he has a deep interest in helping veterans and he initially um, you know, was pretty anti-drug when he was in charge of Texas, but he has shifted his mindset because he's seen the data. And I think a lot of the research kind of speaks for itself. Like if you look at the outcomes of MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD, it's just like, you know, it's like 30% for traditional therapy, somewhere between like 30 and 50%. And it's like 67% for assisted therapy, but the durability of the effect is significant for MDMA assisted therapy. It seems to last longer and be more effective in that way. So I think the numbers are really speaking to a lot of people. And I just think that when you talk to enough veterans and you realize that like, well, it's very bipartisan, like the veteran, anyone who, who cares about caring for veterans, like understands that it's not a political discussion. It's not really a political argument. It's like a what's best for humanity argument. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, he is a person in great power and there's a lot of people in great power that are investing in psychedelics for a reason. I think COVID has shown us that we have to start addressing some of these massive societal problems in new ways because the way that we're treating them right now isn't working. I mean, if you look at the rampant rates of depression and just the nature of how people get hooked on SSRIs and have a really hard time getting off of them, we need some better options for depression. We need some better options for suicide. We need better options for trauma in a variety of ways. There's so many different forms of trauma that we need to treat with different, um, we need, we need new options. So I think psychiatry is undergoing a renaissance and I think it's, it's going to bleed into so many different parts of medicine and it won't just be psychiatry. It will be a lot of primary care. It'll be a lot of, um, you know, I could go into the things that I'm interested in, which is 
specifically female sexual function and dysfunction. So I think there's a lot of um, opportunity and the science of this, of these medicines and is really starting to mount. And when the science starts to keep up and starts to, starts to really show people that there's something really truly there with these, these incredible tools, um, you know, policymakers start getting involved because they start meeting people. I think actually Rick met some veterans who'd experienced dramatic shifts in their, um, in their health from getting treated with psychedelics. Um, there's quite a lot of clinics that are south of the border that treat veterans. And these veterans go down to Mexico to get treated and they come back to America and they say to, you know, these, these people, they say, look, this happened to me, this changed my life. So I think just like there's a critical mass and the right target um, sort of first category of people that have been sort of um, studied has been a category that policymakers really um, they, they, they light up and they realize, oh crap, wow, we've got a lot of veterans who need a lot of help. Maybe we can do something for them. So it starts with veterans, but it's begin- it's going to become uh, a tidal wave of shift in, in, in culture. Definitely. And, yeah. and Tony, you and I have talked about this. Um, I, I personally got interested in this space, uh, the psychedelic space several years ago after learning more about the research happening for people with a, a terminal or life limiting illness who were really benefiting from therapeutic treatment with psilocybin um, for anxiety and distress that really often accompanies a serious illness diagnosis. But we all know well that modern Western medicine doesn't really have the tools to address or treat those things. So I want to know from you as a palliative care physician, you know, what's the promise or what do you think uh, these therapies can really do in terms of helping with existential suffering during yeah. illness or at the end? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it's a situation that is akin to the situation for veterans with PTSD, which is people with uh, a life-threatening illness who are terrified of dying, right? Like this is a universal condition. Now I've interviewed a bunch of people who have either been in one of the trials, NYU or Hopkins trials, or taken um, psychedelics underground. And there are really some pretty remarkable results that you just don't see, except with people who've had the luxury of having had, you know, years to do psychotherapy. And so I talked to one woman who had been diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer, who said that um, when her first line chemotherapy failed, that she started to have panic attacks and would literally shake so hard um, that she would drop things and could not control them. And she realized, and it wasn't so much that she felt fear all the time. It was really these attacks of just shaking. It was just this physical thing for her. And after she had her um, first psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy you know, treatment sequence, I mean, they totally stopped, right? That is a, a kind of result that is really kind of unheard of in the in the palliative care world, right? And, and another woman, um, and someone Michael Pollan has written about, you know, was terrified of a recurrence of her ovarian cancer. During her psilocybin-assisted um, journey, she saw her fear as a black blob under her rib cage, and she screamed at it, get that F out of here. And it dissolved, and actually the fear dissolved with it. And when she woke up, you know, when she got, felt the medicine wear off, the fear was gone. And, and these catastrophic thoughts, these cycles of thinking that everything is going the wrong way, I mean, that completely stopped and it completely changed her life. And 
as an oncologist, I, you know, I've seen so many patients who are so consumed with fear that it blotted out everything, you know, their ability to enjoy what was really in front of them and, you know, shaped their end of life medical decision making in ways that for many of them didn't serve them. And I, I think that's really a, a frontier for the future. You know, there haven't been yet studies that have really examined the effect of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy on end of life, you know, medical decision making. But um, I predict that there's something really big and important there. And what we will need is we will need the government to support this kind of research. Because, you know, despite all the research activity that, you know, Dave and Molly are talking about, I mean, the NIH has yet to fund a single major study about psychedelics, right? The MDMA study for PTSD um, that was just published um, recently, that was funded basically by a philanthropist. So, you know, there's still a ways for us to go in terms of um, getting the kind of research support that enables scientists to do the large-scale, definitive, kind of comprehensive studies that policymakers will really see and go, whoa, this is this this is the game changer. And for an insurance company to go, whoa, this is a game changer, we, we still have a chunk of work to do there. Um, and, and I think it's doable, and it will take this whole cultural shift that we've been talking about here. Molly, did you want to jump in on something? Yeah, I just wanted to add um, something that doesn't get talked enough about when it comes to end of life, and that's the caregivers. Um, I had a couple friends who are really um, struggling with end of life uh, last year. It was actually the end of 2019. And a friend of mine was struggling with stage four colon cancer and his wife, you know, she'd been battling with him for three years. Um, and both of them went to ayahuasca ceremonies. Both of them, um, you know, did essentially did some psychedelic medicine and it definitely did help with the end of life anxiety that, um, her husband had. But in my friend's case, you know, she, um, she wanted to journey on her own with psilocybin because she was still really, I mean, she was still really grappling with the loss of her husband before he even died. And I think that there's, it, it's one thing to do end of life for the person who's suffering. And it's another thing about the person with them. Right. So like, as we get drugs approved in the future, one of the things that I would, I really want to see is I want to see psychedelics available for not just the person who's suffering, but also their, their loved ones. Because I think that healing and healing from conditions is not just a single person thing. It doesn't just happen in your body. It happens in community. It happens with your partner. And in end of life anxiety is not just about the person who's dying. It's about everyone around them. And so I, I think one of the most unfortunate limiting factors of the FDA approval process is that there literally are no drugs approved for use of more than one person at a time. They're only approved for the person suffering. And it turns out that a lot of people suffer outside of the person who's suffering. Everyone around them suffers. So that's just my kind of comment on it. Um, my friend actually ended up doing dramatically well with her grieving process. Like the post, um, post passing of her husband, she used psychedelics to heal and she is thriving today. I mean, she is absolutely thriving. So many, so many women she met who are widows, lives had fallen apart and she absolutely flourished despite the circumstances so there's something to be said about recovery from grief through psychedelic medicine that I don't think we have any, I mean, I have not found any research on it. So um, that's just something that I think is really thought provoking and worth discussing. 
Absolutely. I'm, I am fascinated by that area and um, it's something that it would be wonderful to have a future conversation on for sure. You know, certainly from my perspective, if these medicines are safe and effective at, at reducing suffering for people at the end of life, for their caregivers and, and their families, and really allow them to live more fully until they die, we have an obligation to try to get them to patients as soon as we can. And I think the risk profile is, is acceptable in this population, um, certainly for, for people who are terminally ill. I want to ask Dave, from, from your perspective, do you think that what we're talking about around end-of-life anxiety, the existential distress that can accompany uh, a serious illness, that might be a pathway for, for wider acceptance of these treatments, just given that so many people experience this? Absolutely. I mean, I think the work that was, I guess, started at Hopkins by Roland Griffiths um, years ago is really some of the foundational work showing how uh, people's ability to cope with end of life who were cancer patients really just did so much better emotionally and mentally. And I think in a large, in large part, spiritually, just from having one dose of psilocybin that wasn't even really, there wasn't even a lot of therapy around it. And there was just sort of the basic structure um, of, a, of a safe environment and people did incredibly well. And I think that, you know, not to get too metaphysical here, but death is an inevitable part of life, right? We, we, in our, in many parts of our society in West, in the Western world, we fear death or we spend a lot of time thinking about it and intentionally avoiding it. But a lot of other places in the world, they don't think about it the way that we do. It's just part of being and it should be, it deserves, it deserves respect in that it's as a part of our existence, just as much as everything else does. And I think the more that, you know, anxiety, we talk a lot about this in psychiatry, which is funny because I've probably said this like several times today already, but, but anxiety stems from the feeling of anxiety or being overwhelmed or stressed out all the time, really at its core stems from spending time when we only have so much time to pay attention to anything in any given day. It's spending that precious time of our attention, focusing on things that we can't control. We can't control death. We don't even know what it is really, right? It's kind of like this nebulous thing that we hear a hell of a lot about, but don't really know that much about it or what comes after it or whatever. And so we try to spend all this time thinking about and planning for this uncertainty, but it's something that ultimately we don't have any control over. And so the sooner that we actually acknowledge that and relinquish control over the experience of trying to know with any degree of certainty what's going to come next the sooner that we actually free up precious cognitive resources to just be here now, right? And that is what gives us as the fullest, most incredibly rich and, and uh, you know, powerful life uh, experience that any of us could ever wish for. Um, but it's, but that's interesting because, you know, psychologically, that's what psychedelic, the psychedelic medicine experience when it's, delivered in the proper way can really facilitate people finding that on their own and, f and figuring that out for themselves and understanding it and being at peace with it so that they can live out the rest of their days in a much more meaningful way. And, and the results of the Hopkins work would certainly show that. And Phil Wolfson, uh, a colleague of, of mine who pioneered the ketamine treatments for 
depression um, with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and also uh, did quite a bit of work on MDMA for uh, people with terminal illnesses as well um, and wrote that, co-wrote that protocol with Mike and Annie Mithoffer is currently doing um, ketamine work for clinicians with burnout as well as uh, hospice care, end-of-life uh, work, which is extremely exciting. So much wonderful, uh, wonderful things happening in the space well, I I just want to you know say in, in in closing here we're in this time I think of extreme stress for for so many and uh and living in a truly fractured society in a lot of ways and uh, I see a potential future where psychedelics might you know enhance the ability of people to connect with each other more deeply and hopefully drive a collective societal healing I'm I'm hopeful for that. And I just want to say thank you again to uh, our experts on stage for joining today. And to everyone out there, take good care and we'll see you next time. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Brooks. I've really gotten dinner running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks, because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me, it's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.